out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and also songwriter. It is Ivan Julian, who has a new album titled Swing Your Lanterns that's come out recently on Pravda Records and was one time, well, the founder member of Richard Hell and the Voidoids as well, has a song featured in Shameless. So there's lots to talk about. Anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and the musical awakening. Anyway, Ivan, it's over to you. Several, actually, because um, I, I grew up on in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which is a naval base, you know, which is where they're housing all the you know, 9-11 people now and all that. But yes. they naval base, and I was there with my father, of course, who was in the service. So... Um, we came back to the States and I was there from the age of like four until like nine or 10. So we came back to the States in the mid sixties. So on the base, there was one radio station and it was government controlled. And the one song I remember from that radio station is, is on top of a Smokey by Burl Ives. So there were, there, there was no rock and roll to, or even pop music per se, you know? So mm. when we came back, I, I got hit with like, you know, the seeds, um, Manford man, all these great groups that were releasing singles in the mid in the mid sixties. Yes, and it so just caught my ear. I, I I became immediately addicted. Yeah. So your parents or your dad was in the military at this stage of life. Yeah. Yes, that must have been interesting moving about, and then sort of I suppose by 60, 65, 69, you were sort of the teenage period. So whereabouts in America were you living then? I was living in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Right. Sea Pleasant, Maryland, <laughs> which is literally, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, I mean, it's literally, if you walk across the street, you're in Washington, D.C. It was that kind of thing. Um, but at, and as far as musical awakening at this time, my friend's older brother, when I was 12, took us to see Jimi Hendrix. Mm. That was quite a musical awakening. You know, I mean, because before I just had an audio perspective of everything, um, maybe some Ed Sullivan shows, things like this where the Beatles were on and stuff like that, you know. But then there was this this thing, it's the only, only way to describe it, live in front of me, making all these crazy sounds dressed in every color in the world. Yes. So what period was or what year did you see Hendrix at this stage? Because he'd obviously done... 67, that was Monterey, wasn't it, I think? And then he'd obviously been to Britain, came back, suddenly became, you know, this global megastar, really, wasn't he? So what, when did you see him? I think it would have been 68, because it was after Are You Experience was released, and it was just when his second album, Max is Bold as Love, was released. Right. So I think we're talking late 67, early 68. Blimey, that's amazing. So you had that musical awakening, because it was kind of interesting. You're, you're very formative teenage period would have seen of I suppose experienced that kind of change of the summer of love and psychedelia and hippiedom to that world that was like the the kind of end of the 60s with the kind of Woodstock and the the Charles Manson moment and then you know, the death of obviously Morrison Janis Joplin Jimi Hendrix and the year before Brian Jones so it must have been kind of a lot to take in as, as a sort of a teenager sort of suddenly thinking, this is fantastic. Oh, my God, it's going terribly badly at the moment. I remember the sky when um, I heard that um, 
Brian Jones died. And then uh, all those people you know, in succession, those three, Brian Jones, said Joplin, and Hendrix. And I just remember looking at the, the gray clouds. It's like, yeah, I mean, it was quite unsettling because, I mean, you know, like most um, adolescents and children or whatever, you're, depending on where you live, you're not used to um, your um, people around you dying or people that you become associated with dying, especially people that are larger than life. You just assume that they're there and that's it. And then um, along this period, then people started dropping like flies, which I don't know, I'm still, still kind of suspicious. Um, and, you know, but it wasn't just that. It was also like um, the end of the summer of love, I mean, 69. It was happening at least nationally because the whole um, um, euphoric hippie period was basically a summer. But like any other movement, including the anti-Vietnam movement, this is what I witnessed, okay? It became infiltrated with assholes, you know, thus, you know, Manson, and it wasn't just happening there, it was happening, like, even where I lived in, in D.C., like, and we had this core of people that were really into music, you know, and, and just kind of played and listened, and they, and we got infiltrated by these people that just wanted to be around the girls and drugs, yes. and, um, and, you know, so and that was kind of, it, it, the whole death of the innocence thing was just kind of, I don't know, universal, I'll say, almost, you know. Yes, I think every scene has a, has, has quite a good twelve, possibly eighteen months, and then after that, you're not old enough to realise that after eighteen months, it's going to be, as you mentioned, suddenly some kind of elements start to come in or creep in because they think it's kind of because everyone's often a bit open and free flown and sort of has that philosophy that it's all going to be fine and we'll just embrace everybody rather than going no. You're not invited. You can't come to this gig because you're well, just going to. Well, that gonna... actually happened as well. I mean, during the whole CBGB's period, you know. I mean, from you know the time when it first started, or you know, and then after it became more popular, then it was a completely different atmosphere with different people. Yes. So then, obviously, when do you get your guitar and start? Because I've only just been a music fan, but I've never made that kind of great leap. But when did you think, right? I'm going to um, persuade my dad to buy a guitar for me and uh, I'm going to start learning some chords. Um, I was playing saxophone in the school orchestra um, and then someone broke into the school and stole my saxophone. Um, so the orchestra leader said, um, okay, well, play this. And he opened his case and it was a bassoon. I thought, okay, well, that's, <laughs> this is an odd looking creature. Um, so I, I got into it actually because I learned the bass clef and, um, and it, it, was, it, was, it was fun, it was unique sounding. But I was also playing in a Led Zeppelin cover band, okay? Um, and because, you know, my friends, we were all into Zeppelin, and um, my friend's mother actually bought him all this gear, bought him a PA system and everything. Um, Ted Nicely, I don't know if you, he went on to produce, produce Fugazi. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, I was the lead singer because I was 13 years old and I had a high voice. Right. You know? But then my voice changed within several months. <laughs> and I was kicked out of the band. And I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do? And the bassoon was not something my peers wanted to talk about, you know? So I picked up Ted's guitar and guitars around and I started learning and started learning. And that's where I actually started um, playing the guitar. And then eventually my father bought me one. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> that is an amazing moment. So, so Led Zeppelin, I didn't realize they, that, that was kind of the early 70s, so they'd already sort of become kind of well-known in the States at this point. Well, yeah, they were well-known because, like, the, the concert I told you about where I saw Jimi Hendrix, um, a month later, the, the same friends 
older brother took us to see The Who um, with Led Zeppelin opening. Right. That's quite a good double bill, isn't it, really? That is well, it was funny because, um, you know, Daltrey was famous for swinging the microphone, right? And then, um, but Plant came out before that and tried to do it and, and was like knocking himself in the head <laughs> and everything, you know, trying to do the Daltrey move. Yeah, but that, we're talking 68, 69. So they were, they were they, I think that might have been their first national tour. I'm not sure of that fact, but it was definitely one of, one of the first, you know. Yes. So did you leave school at 16 or did you stay on to college at this point? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, how can I explain this? Um, yes, I went to college, but I was in high school because um, there was this arrangement made because I was going to quit school because I thought this is redundant. I don't want to be here. You know, I want to be a musician. Why am I here? So then um, this um, teacher um, took it upon herself to arrange for me to go and take music theory at the college near the school. And then those credits would apply to my high school credits. I don't know how she arranged this, but she did. And so that was my time at college. I mean, so therefore, after, in the, my latter year of, of, um, of high school, um, I had already made up my mind that I had to find a way to get out of DC out of that area because there was no way to do what I wanted to do, which was to write and make records. Mm. Because I mean, you're, you're only, I mean, the only thing you could aspire to would be playing in a cover band of this sort or that sort. Yes. I mean, the scene in DC changed after that, you know, because the go-go scene started. I mean, there's a lot of people, famous people from the DC area. I mean, you know, Jim Morrison's from outside there. Marvin Gaye's from, from DC. I mean, a lot of people are from there, you know, but still. Yes. And at the time. Um, when you mentioned go-go, I thought of Trouble Funk from the 1980s, actually. I thought that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, that's later. That's much long after I left. That's, that's like, so did you, did you sort of then become, you toured the UK and Switzerland as a member of the foundations it was actually uk and what was in yugoslavia right yeah that... yeah as a member of the foundations um, and ha so that was quite a good you know that was quite a formative moment wasn't it definitely it was what... definitely a formative moment and i mean yeah what was your ex what was your experience like going around the uk with this kind of soul band well i i moved there to form, to join a rock and roll band um but it didn't turn out that way. I mean, I met them at this place. Few people will remember this place. You might want to look it up, but I know it exists because I was there. It's a place called Manny's Rehearsal Studio, um, down near World's End. And um, that's where I, I met them. Um, and I also met Topper Heaton there as well. Right. Before the clash, yeah. Um, and um, they needed the guitar player and they gave me three days to learn the songs and then I, I, because they, I don't know why, I guess the other guitar player had left, probably because they worked too much. Um, to answer your question, these guys worked like literally eight days a week. I mean, sometimes we had gigs in two different cities the same day. They'd have gear set up for us. One day we'd be playing like a, kind of like, a, I mean, a, a labor club. I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, and then another time, they're actually like almost romantically, I remember playing this place that had chicken wire up in front of the stage. Like, about like an old Hank Williams, you know, yes. and stuff like that. And then but, the next day, yeah, yeah. And then the next day, we'd be playing some huge supper club. So it was, you know, touring music one on one for me. I learned a lot. Yes. Well, I, I know when I, I did an interview with um, Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and I remember him saying that he 
he learned it all with one of these kind of bands, which just, you know, you just played once, twice a night for, for months, if not years. So you just kind of learn your instrument and that was your apprenticeship. And once you've done that, you know, you can pretty much do most things. But, you know, it's it's the grounding. And I do remember JJ French from Twisted Sister. I did an interview with him and he said that they spent 10 years just playing constantly around New York before a record label would sign them. And then suddenly... You know, the 80s was their decade, wasn't it? But they, they spent the 70s kind of slogging, slogging it out, so to speak. I remember so. that happening, actually. I remember seeing their ads in the paper playing these little tiny places, and then all of a sudden um, they're at the Academy of Music, you know, they're playing this big venue in, in, in the village. But I remember you seeing the name, everyone went, just went, what's that, what's that, what's that? And finally, boom, yeah. Yes. So was as the seventies sort of crept in. I mean, I had an older brother who was seven years older. He was into prog rock, which I must admit, I'm a bit disappointed with because I sort of consumed the world of Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. But um, yes, there was that that scene. There was the glam scene, and then the R and B, you know, the pub circuit scene before punk came. So were you when punk started to sort of appear? Were you in the UK at this stage? You're back in the USA. Um, I think I was probably in Yugoslavia, you know, because I quit the foundations and they went back to the UK. I stayed in Yugoslavia just kind of figure out what I was going to do. Um, for those that don't know, Yugoslavia is like the whole country that is now Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia and, and Macedonia, etc. Um, and actually, just a side note, when I was there, someone told me that when Tito dies, meaning he was the president at the time or whatever, prime minister, He's the only Yugoslavian, and after that, the country's going to break up, and that's exactly what it did. Um, but I was there, and I kept reading in NME and, 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 and magazines like that, and um, um, a Melody Maker about the scene in New York, you know, this place in, where everybody was, you know, making their own music, and I mean, and it was just kind of little blurbs here and there. There was no feature article or anything like that. And I thought, okay, I have to go to New York. And I'd avoided going to New York because... Um, how I got out of DC is I got I, I got a job as a paralegal on a in a law firm um, on Capitol Hill in the downtown with the government and everything. And they would send me up to New York on junkets to do paralegal work and you know deliver yeah. checks and things like that. And instead of using the hotel money, I would just kind of go out all night and go to Max's Kansas City and these places and kind of you know just kind of check out the scene and all that. And once I saw Johnny Thunders in Union Square, which was close to Max's, with no coat. And no guitar case. And I just seen them on TV and I thought, I'm never moving to New York. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too rough. I'm just like, I, I can't do it, you know? Um, so, but then I, I bit the bullet and I thought, okay, I'm going there. So that's, that was my, and it wasn't really punk rock at the time, at least not in the States, you know? It, it wasn't that. I mean, that didn't come about in the States until I think, you know, some um, newspaper article or Macy's. Or, or actually, it came from Punk Magazine. I mean, but that yes, there was no um, title for it yet. I know that's yes. I, I got Punk Magazine was the, was responsible for that. So then, seventy seven, we have the Silver Jubilee and we celebrate the Queen. Um, but you, you know, you at this stage, you you have a major sort of career moment and sort of join Richard Hell at this point. How did that kind of relationship start or form? Um, I came back to New York, as I said, um, I put an ad in, the, in this paper called Musicians Classified, which used to be this kind of, I mean, kind of, you know, musicians paper, like, unlike the Village Voice, it just focused on, on music. And, um, and then I waited and my ad was in the back of the paper and on the front of the paper was an article on Richard. 
um, and the whole downtown scene and how he was this poet, blah, blah, blah. So they saw my ad. The ad said, have guitar, will travel. Um, and um, they called me in to audition, and they liked what they heard, and I liked what I heard. They had like two and a half songs at the time. And I thought yes. it was a per perfect opportunity for me because they needed someone to write songs, and they wanted to tour, and they had a production deal. I know. It's, uh, it, it, it was kind of amazing. And it's, it's kind of, I mean, can you remember how Blank Generation, because that's one of the, the most timeless songs of all, you know, of all of modern time. How did that sort of, can, what's your memory of recording that? Of recording it? Well, first of all, um, when I first met them, um, we were rehearsing for this EP, okay, like I think three songs, and that was one of them. But Richard just had the core of the song. He said he wanted an intro. And I thought, okay, I mean, it just came to me. I just kind of hit, started with the guitar and I came up with the intro for Blank Generation. You know, I mean, and it's it's roughly um, based on The Seeker by The Who. I, don't, I mean, it just is, I don't know. I, I was listening to it at the time. You, you probably won't find any comparisons if you listen to it, but that was what, what was in my mind. So anyway, um, um, and then, you know, we recorded the EP and that went okay, but... In terms of memories um, and Blank Generation, we were recording, um, mixing Blank Generation when um, the blackout happened that summer, the ele ele electri electrical blackout. Yes. And we were listening, and we were up in Plaza Sound, which is um, basically Radio City Music Hall, which is kind of ensconced by, you know, cement. You can't see anything outside. And we're listening to the ooze, and all of a sudden they go, ooh, and the lights go out, and we go, oh, shit, we've blown something up again. <laughs> and we didn't know that, like, it was this whole, you know, regional blackout for the whole, for, for the whole area. Yes. That was the end of that session, of course, until the power came back on. Weird. That was amazing. So what was your experience, you know, what's your memory of that kind of three years with Richard and, and that particular lineup and band? God, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um I mean, it was it it, it it was educational and different because I was used to a band that like just, you know, worked and played all the time. And Richard only wanted to play punk rock venues. Um, problem with that was there were probably three punk rock venues in the whole country, you know, maybe four. Yes. Um, so we didn't play out as much as I wanted to or um, Mark wanted to. Um, but I enjoyed being in the band because I like Richard. And I, I like the music. Um, I like, you know, what I was able to contribute to the music. I like Bob, you know, because Bob was coming from an entirely different place. Bob Quine, Robert Quine, rather. Um, but um, it, it, uh, the whole visceral aspect of um, being with Richard is what I, I remember. I mean, you never knew what was going to happen with him, you know. Um, and, Yeah. Yes. And how did it kind of end? What was the sort of the moment where you thought, no, I can't do this anymore? Well, like I said, I mean, it reached a point where um, the Richard's drugs just got in the way. Um, it, it, it was a dysfunctional model for a band, which is why, you know, Mark Bell slash Mark and Ramon left, you know, a couple of years before as well. It's like we would, you know, play a gig once or a month or once every two months. And the rest of the time we're sitting around pretty much with no money. You know, and we didn't see a need for it. And at a certain point, I thought, you know, we're not even really making records anymore. Um, it's time for me to go. Yes, it's an easy, it was probably quite easy. And then sort of like for us in the dear old UK, you know, the 80s comes in and we, we get a new, you know, leader of the Conservative Party who 
has a huge impact. And then we have the sort of Falkland War, and then we have, yes, the, the threat of nuclear war with, you know, Greenham Common sort of protests. There was also the minor strike. So the UK at this stage is pretty poor. But there's an awful lot of bands and music starts getting played. I mean, what was the sort of scene like for you in the sort of early 80s? Because obviously you've been kind of in the music business world for quite some time. Most people after five years have had enough. But obviously the 80s comes along and you're still sort of wanting to, um, yes, create the next adventure. Yeah, well, I mean, I love music. I love the process. I love the process of recording. I mean, going back to your question a while ago, one of the things that really inspired me to become a musician was the movie Nashville by Robert Altman. And it was, I mean, it was a scene he created where all the musicians would go out and see their peers every night. Yes. You know? I mean, and I mean, it was a total musical scene. So, I mean, I still love that process. I was living fairly close to CBGB's at the time and I had my ear to the ground, to the ground as to what was going on and how the whole scene was becoming more percussive with like the you know, no wave bands and things like that, you know? Um, it's funny that you keep bringing up the political climate because one thing I always said about, you know, the punk rock scene in UK versus um, America, in, in, in the UK it was a socio-political movement. Here it was just a creative movement at best. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, there, 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 it, it, uh, there, there wasn't much of a um, stance against politics per se as right. there was. Because I was in the UK in the 70s and I saw how it needed to be because I wondered then how everybody survived. Yes. There was certainly a lack of money and opportunity at that stage. It gets yeah. worse in the 80s, I think. So um, there you go. Yes. For your, for your 80s, though, you, you form a new band, The Outsets, don't you? So this is, this is the next adventure. And in a lot of ways, again, this is kind of simplistic, but I know there's that kind of post-punk time where in the UK you know there was bands like Magazine and the Gang of Four and Peel and there was also other little quirky people like Rima Rima and then sort of after that in about 82 83 you know we have that kind of rise of the indie pop world with you know basically the bands like the Smiths and then in Australia you got the Triffids and you know New Zealand the Chills but there was definitely this kind of return to I suppose you know possibly bird s kind of music that um a lot of you know guitarists and songwriters were sort of tapping into so that was kind of a bit of a scene for five years and and the smiths were quite a major you know player on the independent scene for me anyway so as as you sort of formed your you know your sort of main band and this was probably the first band that was you know you could say was yours how did that um sort of pan out um we released um an, an ep um we found, and we did an East Coast tour, a Midwest tour, um, and um, uh, basically what happened is we started to progress, and then the bass player died of an overdose. Right. You know, I mean that's just that's the simple you know, story of it. You know, which um, kind of sent me in a in a, in a tailspin for a while, until um, not for very long actually, because um, then I joined Streetback. Right. Good old street pack. They were very post-punk, weren't they? Yeah, I love that band. I, I really did because they, I mean, they were great play musicians. They were a lot of fun on the road. A lot of fun. <laughs> and, and, um, and, 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 you know, they were a great mixture of rock and roll and funk. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed playing with them. Yes. Did you at that stage come back to the UK at this point and, and start sort of, um, you know, basically being a resident in the UK? 
Um, I came back with them so, uh, twice, I think, to do UK tours. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was on. I think we we're opening for Simple Minds. Yeah. God, that's um, that's very good. And was it Barry Adam Ad, Adamson who was in the band? Or Barry Andrews? Andrews, that's the one, yeah, right? And Dave, and, and Dave Allen from the Gang of Four. Yes. And, and Hugo Burnham, um, that was also in the Gang of Four, was the manager. Yeah. That's amazing. So then what happens for you in the 90s? What's the sort of the general sort of musical direction for that next period? Oh, let me think about that. Um, okay, that and then some Broadway things. And then um, in the 90s, I think I was um, basically I, I, um, I was doing demos and learning how to record myself. Right. And I really kind of delved into like, on the, I mean, dove in, I should say to um, recording and the recording process because, I mean, you know, I've always been interested in it. And what you know, really, another thing that attracts me about this whole thing is the whole um, process and craft of making records. I love it, you know? I mean, another thing that inspired me was the snare sound on I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I was just obsessed with the sound. I thought, what is this? How do they do that? Um, so I was doing that. And um, then uh, I started to, to tour. Once again, I got a phone call and I started to tour with this guy, Matthew Sweet. Yes, huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, huge, huge pop guy, really great songs. And once again, like Street Fact, he goes, the song's in D, do what you want. I like that. Excellent. <laughs> I like that direction because, you know, yeah. And I was with him for pretty much six years in the 90s, you know. Had you become a bit of a what they refer to as a gun for hire? Were you somebody who were able to sort of slip in? Because you also work with the Flesh Tones as well. Yeah, with the Flesh Tones, I worked as a producer, though. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I mean, but the, uh, around the '90s, that was my thing. I was a gun for hire. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, when I was for for hire, because I, you know, I spent a good, good part of the time, actually being employed, which was a, which was a good thing. I, I like to say, I mean, as I put it, I rented myself out, you know, because it was, you know, I mean, it was a way to make a living. Yes, and then. Because this is kind of strange, because that was the same time that I I got diagnosed with cancer at the end of 2015, 16, which which was kidney. You also get cancer in sort of 15 as well, don't you? So this is um, your anacerebralist period. So how did you sort of what what happened? How did you discover it? I started to feel weird. You know, I started to feel very weird and very and very very strange, and um um. My wife says, you know, you got to go get this checked out. I go, get what checked out? I don't know what's, what's going on. So then I went in and this, and notes, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was a musician and, and it's different here in the States. I had absolutely no health insurance. Um, I'd been to the doctors probably two or three times in my life, you know, and I, mean, I ate fairly well, you know, did some, you know, odd things here and there. Um, but um, you know, took fairly good care of myself. So that was the last thing in my mind. But then I was diagnosed yeah, with lower intestinal cancer. And um, it was uh, a life, I mean, as you all know, it was a life changer and a game changer because you don't know how to, you're not prepared for this. There's no rule book. No. Know? I mean, and, and especially when you have to, in the States, when you have to navigate the whole health insurance system, it's a nightmare. It's a total nightmare because. Um, yes. I mean, it, it, I, I have to say here, thank God for Obama and Obamacare, or I would be dead. Because, you know, um, pre-existing condition, all these situations, a musician, um, no health insurance company would touch me at the time. I mean, even when I was diagnosed, I said, okay, well, I'll just pay for it myself. She goes, I said, how much is it? She goes, well, um, you know, um, 
Um, the x-rays alone are $75,000. I went, what? <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, so, I mean, and I actually see me laughing about it now. It was a very serious period, but I do have to say, one thing, amongst other things, that helped me survive that was my sense of humor, you know? Yes, well, I know, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's it's kind of... When you walk into the surgery, you know, the to see the surgeon not knowing what they're going to say after a scan and and they look a little bit kind of um, concerned in the UK and they, you know, there's a nurse and you're sort of wondering, well, I'm fine, you know, I'm sure this is all going to be good. And then they they show the scans and they and you go, oh, I don't think the black area is kind of what's the good thing, is it? And it's like, no, it's not. And it's like, we could sort of do a biopsy, but to be honest, let's just get straight into it and let's sort it because personally, I don't think that's going to be something that um, you should keep in your body. So let's get that out ASAP. What are you doing next month? And it's like, well, I'll probably clear my calendar then. <laughs> it's like, shit. <laughs> but yes, you, you you do have to have a bit of a sense of humour because I because I went in, okay, briefly, and I saw urology and I thought, urology, I'm sure that's to do with, you know, they're going to do something with pipes going up the you know, penis and stuff. And when I went there, he go, no. And I went, my God, I had a shower and changed my pants. And he just burst out laughing. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, okay, just, you know, okay, this not, it's not that, is it? We're not doing that procedure. We're, you're just telling me I've got cancer and you just keep going, shit, yeah. I've never thought I'd hear those words. And it's like, I'm only, I don't know, 50, 50, yeah, you know, it was seven years ago. So it's eight years ago. So it was like, I'm only in my 53, you know, how, how did that happen? You know, kind of thing. So Yes, it's a it's a kind of an it's an amazing numb experience, and it's kind of quite a lonely process because you, you know, you, you know, you get the date, and then you have the all these little tests before, and then you sort of go to the hospital, and you just walk through those doors, and then you have to say goodbye to everybody that you've you know the person you've gone with, and just you know look for the epidural and get knocked out, and just hope you wake up. It's just so weird. Well, yeah, I mean that's where the sense of humor comes in because you you, you get the epidural and you go. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to wake up, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, of course you hope you go, yeah, it would be nice to wake up from this and let's see what happens. Because it, that's the other thing is you lose con total control of, of your life. You're in, in the hands of whatever institution and doctors. And, I mean, if you have good doctors, it can work out really great for you, you know. And if you have bad ones, I mean, it can, it can not work out so great. But, yeah. Yes, I know. Oh, yeah, that was it. He was, you know, you're doing that. You know, they, I don't know if in the UK, in the USA, but they do a lot of drawing on your body of like, you know, X kind of follow the arrow and here, you know, get, let's, let's make sure we get the right kidney and stuff like that. And then signing, you know, if you die, sign this film rights. He said, we won't be filming it, but just in case we film it, you know, it's like, whatever, you know, it's like, it's I'll just. scary though, like when you have to sign that thinking, well, if, if I what? <laughs> don't you guys know what you're doing you know <laughs> i know and you have to i mean in this country it was like you know date of birth postcode name it's a bit like come on i'm not going to pretend to be someone else at this stage am i but it's, uh, you know you just you just kind of going with it aren't you <laughs> that's really funny i never thought of it that way that's true because i constantly asking your date, date of birth it's like yeah well i fake my name and date of birth to be here <laughs> yeah i'm not i'm not really the person i just thought i'd take his place that's and have a major weird. operation just that's for a that's so true to life. That's so hilarious. That's yeah. Hilarious. But then you did also experience a, a kind of a benefit kick as well, which must have felt really heartwarming. That was amazing, actually, because um, two things happened then. First of all, the last thing I was concerned about was money. I mean, I was I thought I, 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 I had no concept of it. You know, I mean, I was cognizant, but I thought 
money? What, what do I, what, you know, I was too busy dealing with, you know, whatever I was, what was going on. I, I was busy dealing with the immediate moment, literally, you know. So uh, some friends of mine put together a benefit. Um, and then Richard Hell found out about it. And I get this call from one of my friends and Richard, and they say, Richard Hell wants to take over the benefit. I said, okay, well, no, he's going to control everything. Okay, just know that and do what you want. And Richard took it over and, it, you know, it, he proved to be a great friend. As he, he always was, you know, I mean, but he, he really stepped to the, up to the plate on this one because, I mean, he gathered Debbie Harry and all these people. He, he moved it to a larger venue so it actually could make money. I mean, yeah, I mean, and um, yeah, that, that was heartwarming. And also to see all the people in this room that I hadn't seen in the same room for, I don't know how many years, you know, since the 70s, like Debbie and, you know, D Dick Manitoba from the Dictators, et cetera, et cetera, you know. God, that's so amazing. And Matthew even influenced to do it, you know. So, yeah, it was. I mean, as, as my friend, so, um, I don't know, um, macabrely put it, it goes, I've been the only person I know that attended his own funeral. <laughs> yeah, I did. I it does. It does have that kind of duality, doesn't it? Of almost like going to your own, you know, because people mostly would just go, oh, they'll turn up at your funeral and say, I wish I'd seen him. But he's like, no, you got an opportunity. I'm still alive. <laughs> but, but there was one foot almost in the other side. So but you have the but then your cancer returns, does it? No, it doesn't. That, 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 that's a misnomer. No, that that, that never happened. What happened? And then everybody freaked out and started to organize benefits again. I'm like, guys, calm down. What happened was the cancer never went away. And what, what they did is they, um, the radiation that they gave me as treatment actually caused another tumor. Okay? Right. And then, the tumor, and I kept telling my oncologist, like, you know, this is there's something going on down there. Something she goes, yeah, okay, well, you go get it checked out. And I did. And this is where I, I, I ran into doctors that were not so. Um, um, so, so great. I mean, because one guy wanted to just kind of cut up everything, you know, and um, he was basing his diagnosis on a JPEG, literally this fuzzy picture they had taken, you know. So um, I went to another doctor and, and they just like, you know, cut out the cancer that was there. That was great. But it didn't return. It was, like I said, the same cancer. Right. Cheesy, crazy. My God, that is kind of a lot to deal with. That's that is extraordinary. So then you've got this new. Sorry, you're going to say no, 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 but then, you know, around this decade, when did you start thinking about making a new album and new release? As soon as I could crawl out of bed. That's good enough. You know, yeah. Literally, as soon as I could crawl out of bed, because I mean, of course, you have a lot of time to, you know, to um, be with yourself, you know, kind of, I mean, just healing and, you know, I'm and not able to walk and just kind of being in bed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, if I can ever get out of here, I'm going to devote whatever time I have to making records and not just playing on people's stuff and not just producing, but actually making my own records. And that's what I'm going to do. And, and I, um, I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, electronics guy. So when I was first able to move, I started building my own microphone with this kit. And then I took it into the other room and I started recording with it, lying on the floor. I still couldn't really walk yet. But I thought, okay, if I get better, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make this record. Yes, absolutely. So, so did you? I mean, because I'm not sure. Is it you, just you, or have you sort of brought in a, a sort of other musicians as well? 
I always bring in other musicians, you know, because um, my thing about that is, you know, if you read liner notes or histories of albums, you know, that you, that you love, there's always people aside from the core band that are responsible for the sound of the record. You know, so, I mean, I play bass on this record. I mean, but then again, there's four bass players on the record. I play almost everything except for drums. Um, but I do bring in people, you know, to kind of help the sound out. Because, like, I, I think, uh, what does this song need and who can provide that to this song? Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, it's, there's always a, a crew of people on my records. And then, of course, I mean, they're all listed in the credits. Yes, my God, that's amazing. Because I've I've been listening to it. You've got a great sound to it, and I mean, with with the with bringing it together, what comes first? Does, does the you know do, does the music shape it, or do the lyrics and the sentiment shape the the kind of direction of each track? Um, it depends. I mean, sometimes. I mean, for instance, there's one song, "Can't Help Myself," where it's inspired by a Charles Bukowski story. You know, sometimes I'll read a story and then just a musical backdrop will come to me, sometimes related to the story, sometimes not. Um, and um, other things are just, you know, kind of riffs and stuff I have that kind of tell, say something to me. So, I mean, usually, though, it's just um, it just appears kind of as a song. Um, and I mean, it's a song, Kazala, that um, I wrote um, when Matthew Sweet and I were stuck in a hotel room and Colorado somewhere during a snow snowstorm and we're passing Edgar Allan Poe books back and forth and that just kind of made made the song you know I mean it happens when it happens I have to admit sometimes it happens immediately sometimes yes. it takes years did you because <laughs> I know when you know dear old David Bowie was doing his kind of um last album especially Black Star I mean it's such a reflection it seems you know it's hard to to sort of separate the two things especially with the videos as well that he made for it did did you have was that always kind of hanging over your head, that kind of memory of what you'd been through just quite recently, you know, and had, yeah, I just wondered how that kind of shaped some of the sort of songs and sound. Um, th those songs haven't come out yet. They're, 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 I mean, the songs that resulted from the illness and all that, you know, um, I got to say, I mean, I'm a huge Bowie fan and that really touched me when knowing what pain he was probably going through while he was making those videos, you know, I mean, it's just amazing to me. It's, uh, I mean, you know, what I mean, it's not like, I mean, he just shows up and puts on makeup. And I mean, he must have been going through a lot. I mean, especially at that stage of his life, you know, to actually do that. I mean, once again, my hat's off to him. But, yes. you know, I mean, I mean, if, if there was kind of a, a you know, a, an umbrella or something, I mean, it, it resulted from the illness, was just, you know, focus and get this done. You know, I mean, and the songs are just songs about life as, you know, I've always written. And have you had sort of plans to sort of tour and do some live dates as well, sort of this coming year? Absolutely. I just I have plans. I, they're not printed for Rusin yet, but I do want to find a booking agent. Yes. And I do want to tour with this record because I love playing live and I love traveling. Where yes. are you, by the way? I'm in the UK, Norwich, UK. So um, that's where oh, we're Norwich. based. Yes, dear old Norwich, which is um, often pronounced slightly differently, but it's fine. We can cope. You must, you might have been here. It's sort of a hundred miles north of I'm London. Sure. I'm sure I've been to Norwich. It's yeah. a fine. I it's mean, called a fine city. So there you go. I mean, with with the amount of work that you've done, if you do any live dates, would you sort of would it sort of focus not just on the solo work but other 
you know periods of your life as well would you would you bring in different bits for your set that you know the work that you've done with previous bands oh yeah oh absolutely yeah i mean you know it, it's obligatory that even though i'm not richard that i do blank generation you know i mean people i know that it's in the back of their minds they want to hear it so i i do my best to to do to do blank generation but also songs from my last record the naked flame that we do Yes, you know? that's yeah, right. So but... I mean, it's, there's going to be, I mean, bits from here and there that um, that will, will will be in the set. Yes, and um, if you were able to sort of whisper something to your like 16, 18 year old self starting out, is there anything, any kind of words of wisdom or advice or direction that you would slightly nudge them, even if they ignored you? I'm sorry. Ask the question again. Yeah, I mean, is, is there any advice or wisdom or a nudge that you would give somebody, your 16-year-old self starting out? That's, that was the question. What would, you, what would you tell your 16-year-old self if you were able to meet them, even if they ignored it? Um, um, I, this is coming to me. Hold on. Um, Don't beat yourself up. <laughs> you know, it's something that, I mean, it sounds simple, but I mean, I say a lot of things here. I could say, listen to your inner voice, blah, blah, blah. But the main thing is to not beat yourself up because there's a lot of plenty, plenty of people that will do it. And, you know, if, and, you know if, if you doubt yourself, then you're only putting obstacles in your own way. And everybody yes. has moments of doubt, of course. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not just, you know, full steam ahead. It's like um, with, with lots of, you know, impetus, it's like, you know, there are moments of doubt, but if I could talk to my 16-year-old self, I mean, even with, you know, um, having wherewithal to move in England and everything, um, I would say, you know, don't doubt yourself. Just keep going, you know? Yes, that's right. I mean, because your previous album, which came out, was it 2009, did you, was this with a more of a set lineup and a band rather than, you know, um, just bringing in different musicians for different songs? Well, that too had different musicians for different songs. Was, uh, my friend um, Al Matty, he used to play with Joey Ramone. He he also plays on all my records. And uh, he, um, to his chagrin, I mean, I always bring him in and say, okay, play this or play that. We we happen to have a xylophone, and he played xylophone on the last record, and that actually changed the song entirely. But what happened with that is there was a band called Capsula from um, Bilbao, Spain, and they came to my studio um, and recorded an album. And they asked me, well, do you, you must have some songs, you know, if you want to record. And I went, yeah, but I'm doing this right now, blah, blah, blah. They said, okay, give us the songs. We'll take them back to Spain and we'll demo them. Okay, and we'll send them back to you. And then if you want to make a record, let us know. They took them back and man, they just brought life and immediacy and, and everything to the songs. I mean, this, I mean, this made them kind of visceral and, and great. And, and um, that was my band for the, for the record pretty much. And, and I, they sent that back to me and I put guitars and, and vocals and stuff like that on it. And uh, yeah, but I mean, that, that was the core band Capsula. Yes. The, the, the European release actually also uh, says Ivan Julian and Capsula, actually, the one that was um, reached out of Spain. Yeah. And when, you, when you're sort of looking for inspiration, do you go sort of, where do you go? Do you go for, you know, literature, film, art? exhibitions go for a walk i just wondered when you need to sort of find that inner inner creativity what where where do you sort of um head for 
you know, it's funny, all, all, all those things actually, I mean, especially film and literature, because like I said, I'll, I'll read something or I'll see something in a movie and I go, this is, you know, bringing something to life for me. Um, or, you know, and sometimes I'll hear a song and I think, I want to write a song like that, you know, not that song, but I want to write a song like that, you know, that has an element to it. And the last case resort, and this is one of the reasons why I live in New York, is to go for a walk. Because yes. you can always find something inspiring on the streets. You know, London's a city like that as well, where there's a lot of street life. There's things that happen outside, you know, so like you can actually, I mean, even without trying to observe sometimes, notice things that will, will you know, inspire you um, creatively. And with guitar playing, actually, is that... That's a, good, that's a good thing that you say that, because one second. The Naked Flame, okay? Yes. The, the title of the, of the last album and the song. That was inspired because um, I was in London in the mid 2000, no, it's been like 2004 or something. And I was in the tube and I saw this sign that said, no naked flame. And it just hit me as very poetic. You know yes. the signs, right? You probably see them yes. all the time. Yeah, and to me, it was just like, why wouldn't you say no, no smoking or just, just no, and it just really hit me with almost this epiphany. And that's how that song kind of came about. Yes, that's interesting. And with guitar playing, is there is there any particular you you mentioned earlier a little bit about the seeker from the Who, you know, which was subconsciously there? I mean, are there any other guitar players or bands that you occasionally sort of kind of listen or tune into just to sort of get some idea or inspiration? Well, of course. I mean, you know, I've been around for a while, so the list is as long and, and, and longer. Um, but I mean, one of my main idols is Keith Richards because he he, he is a and it, uh, this is something I decided when I was younger actually because he's a guitar guitar player that puts together songs that makes songs as opposed to just play fast lead guitar. You yes. know, I mean, I like that too. But I mean, there's him. I love PJ Harvey. I was just listening to her the other day. Um, um, there's um, Dave Davies. You know, yeah. I mean, which is who's I think is an amazingly underrated guitar player. Um, uh, there, and, you know, there's uh, Hubert Sumlin, who was the guitar player for Howlin' Wolf. All these people on their technique. Um, Charlie Christian, you know, I mean, Quine and I used to sit with um, sheet music. Was it sheet music we had? No, it was a record, this record um, called Swing to the Bop. And just listen to two bars of Charlie Christian and try to figure it out. And then, you know, um, add that into the music that we were making for Blank Generation. There's yes. little intervals. In there that, I mean, things outside of the blues scale that you wouldn't think of. Yeah, and it was interesting because I remember they watching a documentary with Jimi Hendrix and there was an amazing clip of him with a acoustic 12-string guitar playing, I can't remember what it was, Hear My Train Come In, and it was just so oh. kind of gentle and beautiful. I just wondered if you ever sort of yourself get a guitar, the acoustic guitar or the 12-string just to sort of, you know, sort of get a different vibe or different sonic quality. I constantly, if you listen to the new record, there's acoustic guitar on a lot of the songs. I mean, even on um, The Naked Flame, there's a song called You Is Dead, which is just acoustic. Um, I tell people that, you know, want to listen, that in order to play the guitar, you have to play the acoustic guitar. Because, you know, you have to understand the tone of, of what, what you're doing with the strings. And in the end, it's all wood. Okay, both electric and acoustic, it's all wood. So playing the acoustic guitar helps you understand how to really address the electric guitar i mean and one of my favorite songs is um, no expectations um, off of beggar's banquet you know this and that the whole album actually and a lot of that period is because of the sound of the acoustic guitar that's there it's just so pure and and um you know 
um, what's what's the other word? It's just it's just pure, organic is the word I'm looking for. You know. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because because oh, yeah. that period of the Stones in the late '60s, early '70s, leading to Exile on Main Street. I mean, there was just a lot of kind of other bits in there apart from blues. There was also that country element as well, and there was something about I don't know if you listened to Exile recently, but there's something incredibly as you said, organic about listening to the way they put that together. And it's quite loose. I would imagine, you know, some people might have a heart attack of how kind of hit and miss some of it can be, but there is something kind of gorgeous about it. Yeah, you know, there's a song I was experimenting with late, lately that I, I found I've been playing wrong my whole life, which is a song called Let It Loose. Oh, yes. Which is just a beautiful guitar part. It's just a beautiful, and it's not acoustic, it's electric, but then again, it's down at the bottom of the neck. I'm pretty sure it was written on an acoustic guitar, but I don't know. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, I wanted to put acoustic guitar on the Blank Generation album, but I was shot down. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, my, 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 my thing was, Guys, listen to I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Listen to these songs from the 60s, and there's acoustic back there chugging away, helping the rhythm happen. You know, yes. It doesn't have to be an acoustic song. You don't even have to hear it. It's just a, another part of the drums sometimes. Yes, absolutely. I know. There was, um, I can't remember, what's his name? Taylor, the other guitarist who take over from Brian, Brian Jones. Mick Taylor, who I think has, has kind of complimented Keith so well on that kind of particular period. So, um, yes. Yes, he does have a he does have a good sort of combination, really. But then, you know, with a lot of you know musicians, they often have that sort of telepathic kind of quality. Did you have you sort of experienced that yourself in some of the musical lineups that you've played with? How do you mean telepathic? In which well, I, I always remember it was actually Lemmy from Motorhead talking about being in Hawkwind with David Brock, and he said that he's never experienced such a relationship with another musician. He sort of they knew exactly where they were going and what they were doing, and it was just I just wondered if you ever had that experience yourself with with another musician that you kind of could read each other so perfectly. Twice. I mean, once, of course, was with um, Quan, with Robert Quan, because that's how we um, modeled the band. We modeled the band after the Yardbirds, where there were two guitar players. None was either the lead or the rhythm. And most importantly, we never played in the same part of the neck at the same time. If he was playing a G chord down at the bottom of the neck, I would play a G chord somewhere else or in another formation. And, you know, we, it, and it was just kind of intrinsic. We, like, just felt each other out on the whole thing. You know, it, I, I, it's almost strange because... Towards the latter days of the Vordoids, he started to sound more like me, and I started to sound more like him. It's kind of weird, you know. Yeah, definitely with Quine, and uh, you know, with Matthew as well. We, we kind of had that, even though Matthew just played straight rhythm while I played lead most of the time. But I could tell, you know, where it fell in, where not to play. Um, yeah, because um, that that's part of it as well. It's like you know, listening to me as a musician, listening, hearing, but listening. And knowing when not to play, as Miles Davis says, you know, like, you know, what you don't play is just as important as what you play. Indeed, that is so true. Anyway, that's also the end of the interview, apart from the last few moments. But a massive thank you to Ivan Julian for giving me the time for that interview. New album that's titled Swing Your Lanterns is out and available and um, highly recommended. So do check it out. Um, this has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and keep it groovy, please. And all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, 
and Podbean stream. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.